Welcome to episode 75 of Understanding Latin American Politics, the podcast. I'm Greg Weeks, I'm a political scientist at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. And today I'm talking to uh, Maggie Commons, who is Shelton Professor of Political Science at Queen's University of Charlotte. Her research interests include the political economy of international trade and finance, U.S. policy toward Latin America, immigration, and the scholarship of teaching and learning. So Maggie, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Uh, and you have a forth forthcoming article in The Latin Americanist, um, which we'll be talking about today uh, with your colleague, Jeremiah Wills, on, uh, on immigration in the Southeast. And just as a quick uh, overview, they, they use data from the National Conference of State Legislatures to argue that Southeastern states have a more restrictive tone in, in immigration policies. Um, and that uh, is caused some degree by the fast growth of the Latino population in the region, but also the conservative ideology of the region. Um, so, but before we even get to that, oh, I should note too, this is my first uh, uh, video um, podcast. So that's a new new experience as we're uh, we're in the the era of uh, of Zoom and Google Meet and all that kind of stuff. So this is uh, yet another chapter in my uh, sitting around at home. Um, but before we get to uh, the discussion of your argument, I always ask people, you know, how did you get interested in studying Latin America uh, in the first place? Yeah, that's a great question. I went to uh, college at a small liberal arts college in Pennsylvania, Gettysburg College. And actually studied history, um, uh, history of the Civil War and history of modern Europe. And then I took a class with a political scientist who studied Africa on development. And um, she just kind of rocked my world. I grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. and had a very sort of basic education. And she started talking about dependency theory and, you know, um, decolonization in Africa, black power, struggle, all kinds of stuff. And it was like, wow, this stuff is really cool. So I ended up doubling um, down in a political science major. And then I was always intrigued more by Latin America. I have an aunt, a great aunt actually, who was in the um, Pan American Health Organization and she was a nurse in Peru in the 1950s. And so she would talk to me about it. Then she came back and opened this um, Cusco Peruvian import store in California. So she was you know, fascinated with Latin America and, and talking to her that made me really more interested in learning more about Latin America. So when I decided I wanted to study development, I wanted to change the world and figure out what was wrong in the developing world, decided I wanted to do that in Latin America. Cool. I actually, my great grandfather um, worked on the Pan American Highway in Bolivia. Mm -hmm. um, he died when I was really young. So I didn't find this out until like much, much later. It didn't have any impact on, you know, my choice to study Latin America. Uh, but it's funny to have these, these family connections in some way. And that was, I forget, it was sometime in the early 50s, I think, a long time ago. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, they, they have a, I don't think she ever knew she had that outsized impact on me, but she definitely did. Uh, and then immigration, I don't know if it's the same as with me. I mean, with me, immigration was something that I started studying later. And then living in the South, we were just experiencing it, the, the growth of the, of the immigrant population. Yeah, no, exactly. And I, um, when I came back to, um, I took a hiatus, you know, I started out studying really political economy of U.S. policy, trade policy in Latin America. And then I took a hiatus for a while from academia. And when I came back, I, I went back to that. I published an article actually in the Latin Americanist about U.S. Colombian free trade agreement. But 
I d it just wasn't as satisfying anymore. And because I was interested personally in immigration, because we were experiencing it in Charlotte, and because I also wanted to get students involved in research, I started to think about immigration as a policy, um, as a you know set of policies to look at. So that's kind of where I transitioned over to that. Yeah. Um, and so it, for this particular article, what prompted your interest? I mean, is it just uh, just from being in Charlotte or this very particular topic, what got you into it? Yeah, so I, um, when I was actually paging through or scrolling through Lhasa's set of conferences, this was in the early like 2012 or so, and there was a conference on immigration to the Southeast that was being given at Kennesaw State. Alan LeBaron, who's, who studies the Maya, um, he's an anthropologist, and Elaine Levine from UNAM organized this you know, interdisciplinary conference about immigration to the Southeast. And I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. I'm going to go, I'm going to check it out. And um, I was sitting in one of the uh, sessions, and they started to talk about state-level immigration policies. And I thought, wow, you know, I knew they existed, but I hadn't thought much about it. And everybody sort of had a different explanation, right? So what drives states to pass the policies that they pass? And so I was just sort of doodling in the margins and writing down different factors, different variables people were highlighting. And I came back um, to Queens afterwards, and I... I was talking to Jay Wills, my co-author, who's a sociologist and a methodologist. And I was telling him this, and I said, we need to write a paper on this. And he was like, all right, let's do it. And so <laughs> we, um, this is actually the paper with you is the third that we've published of the, from this same data set um, updated. And you'll actually be interested in this. So our research assistant who voted most of the legislation was Morgan Yaguda, who I, I believe taught swimming to your children. No way. That's right. This was the funny thing where she, she was a, uh, a lifeguard and then the, 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 or the swim coach uh, of my neighborhood pool. So my kids knew her. And then yeah. I saw her at the, at the conference and I was like, I know you. Yeah. So she actually developed her honors thesis on North Carolina and some of the policies here. And she worked with us to code in three separate stages because the first one we coded up until 2012 and then 2014 and for this paper up to 2017. But I mean, I, you know, I found her in graduate school in the UK and she finished because I wanted that, you know, that, that validity in the coding. I wanted the same person doing it. So um, the same group. So she was, it was a great help to us. And okay. So she's in graduate school in the UK. She is. She's starting to be a teacher. Oh, that's awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell her I said, hi. I will do. Um, so uh, just thinking of those policies, so what kind of policies were you finding? Were there some any in particular that seemed prevalent? Are they all over the place or what? Well, in the initial paper, um, some of the things that uh, surprised me, number one is how many beneficial policies there are. So you go into it thinking that they're all restrictive policies, right? That they're policies right. anti-immigrant in focus. But there are actually a lot of beneficial policies. And even in that first initial data set, um, there were more um, beneficial policies than there were restrictive policies. And over time, it was about 48% to 42%. And over time, when we expanded the data set to 2017, you see now they're more like 60-something percent beneficial and only about 20% restrictive. So over time, the country, not the South, but the country has become quite a bit more um, beneficial in terms of the policies that they pass. So that was really interesting to me. And it was also interesting that the role of the federal government in terms of the legislation that they pass and how that sort of provides the foundation for these state level policies, right? So there are these two bills in the 1996 that, um, you know, one of them dealt with social programs and access to social programs and denying them to immigrants, but states can affirmatively put their um, put those back in place for immigrants if they choose to. So that's a source of beneficial policies, um, or they can expand the restrictions. 
right, which is a source of restrictive policies. And there's also the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act, right, that's what has 287G, um, which wasn't really implemented until after 9-11, but it was there in the legislation, and that obviously is another area of restrictive policies. So states saying to their local law enforcement, we want you to use 287G, or we don't want you to use 287G, or in a more beneficial sense. So um, it was interesting to see that the role of federal legislation in sort of paving the way for these state level policies and opening up these decisions to states um, who then made those decisions. Actually, that's interesting because often, I think I've probably done this too, is that the growth of state level um, policies is often attributed to failure at the federal government level for getting anything done. But then what you're saying is kind of ironically, it's much of what was getting done at the federal level that was directly opening the door for the states to be doing what they were doing. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, do you see, do you think, was there any change over time? Have we gotten better? Or is it just kind of all over the place in terms of what is of, of like, I remember you got Hazleton, Pennsylvania. There were like these intensely negative hot spots, And I wondered whether it seemed to be, was, was that kind of thing uh, on the decline or do you yes. have any sense? Yeah, no, very much so. So as we update the data set and as, um, you see that there are many, many more beneficial policies being passed and many, many fewer restrictive policies being passed. Again, the South is an outlier in this, but nationwide, um, the vast majority, right, over two thirds, or actually over three quarters of policies that are passed are, are beneficial and focused, not restrictive. See, that's interesting. I wonder whether that has to do with anything like is the as the South gets uh, growth of people from outside the South, that it becomes less conservative or the, the phenomenon now is not quite so new uh, as it was 20 years ago? Well, so that's nationwide. In the South, it's still quite restrictive. So the policy tone in the, United, in the Southeast United States is still restrictive. So but I was saying it was restrictive, but do you, has, that, has it been just consistently so, you think? Yes, it's been yeah. pretty consistently so. Um, yeah, over those years, yeah. Okay, well then too bad. I was trying to inject some optimism in here. Just well, okay, so here's, here's some optimism. One <laughs> of the in the initial paper is, um, this is nationwide, um, but whereas uh, growth in the Hispanic population, the Latino population in particular, is associated with more restrictive policies, so increased growth rates. The existence of a large and stable foreign-born population is actually associated with more beneficial policies. So if you think about the states that have more, you know, California, Illinois, New York, yeah. even Texas, right, um, which is sort of, you know, schizophrenic about it, but it has many more beneficial policies. Uh, that large, consistent, ingrained um, immigrant population is, um, is very important in terms of predicting beneficial policies. And also, this is actually my new project coming up, but if you look within states, if you look at the, there's a lot of really interesting research by demographers in Atlanta. If you look at the Atlanta metro area and that sort of middle ring of suburbs that have become very much the area where foreign-born populations settle. They've become very integrated, very diverse, and very open to immigration. And the same is true in, in Charlotte, right? So right. Actively trying to integrate this immigrant population, but it's situated in this sort of restrictive context, right? So they do things, and then the state kind of brings the hammer down, and then they try something else. And so, actually, that's my next. I have a sabbatical in the spring, and that's what I'm going to be looking at: is immigrant integration in Charlotte and how they navigate that within a restrictive state context. Yeah, because uh, Charlotte politically has changed a lot uh, in the past generation. I mean, yeah. it's just like it's just solidly blue. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Uh, so the, yeah. 18% of the population in Charlotte Mac is now foreign born. So it's also solidly a whole lot more diverse than when we moved here 22 years ago. And only going to become just even more so for the foreseeable future. Right. Um, so, you know, in the, in the research that you were all doing, did, uh, did anything surprise you? Did this basically line up with what you thought or uh, did anything strike you as something maybe you weren't expecting? So I was not surprised that the South is as restrictive as it is in policy tone. Um, you hear about that anecdotally. That was not at all surprising. To have it confirmed by the data um, was, you know, a good thing, I guess, or interesting. But um, one thing that pointed out that the South is not more active in terms of immigrant policy making than the rest of the country. So they're more restrictive in tone, but they don't pass more policies, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in terms of the restrictiveness, I guess what what I had been thinking was, and this is actually what we tested in the paper, was that restrictiveness was more tied to sort of the South's legacy of racism and racial segregation. Yeah, right? so I was wondering about that, yeah. Yeah, so that, that you could explain this sort of anti-immigrant backlash really in sort of a racial threat type of context, which is um, how these studies sort of started out, right, with um, in the 1990s. Um, but what we found was, you know, using this sort of sophisticated modeling is that the same predictors that predict restrictive policies anywhere in the country predict them in the Southeast. So conservative ideology and growth in the Hispanic population. And there's some really good researchers, um, Gulas Karam and Ramesh Krenan, I'm sorry, I'm butchering their names, but they have, you know, they talk about this all the time and they say the, the issue is not that immigrants have moved to new destination states in the South, right? The issue is that immigrants have moved to Republican heavy destinations. And yeah. we, that's what we confirmed with our research. And I really expected it to be, I wasn't sure we were going to find that, right? I wasn't sure that that was going to be the outcome, but it was. Yeah. And you know, and that would, uh, it would make sense if you were able to, to expand it. Cause I think again of Hazleton or, or uh, other places outside the South, um, the, the, where you would think, okay, well, they don't have that same, the, the history of slavery and all that kind of stuff, uh, but it's still going to be, it's heavily conservative, it's a Republican um, place, and this is a new thing. Uh, and so it seems like a lot of those places you see pretty much the same kind of result. Yeah, and that's true. And there's actually a lot of interesting research going on at the municipal level. And you still find, again, at the municipal level, that that conservatism, even within a more, um, you know, liberal or progressive state, you're going to have that same sort of thing. Uh, okay, sure. Because, I mean, uh, having grown up in California, I could tell you that California gets labeled as blue, but man, there are some seriously red pockets. Right, of course. And I would love to see, like, what are those, what's going on in those particular pockets that's quite different from what's going on at the state level. Right. Um, it, this is kind of this, the, my next question is kind of getting at this, uh, what we've been discussing, but you know, it, we, we talk about Southeast, but do you think if you broke it down, would you see variation between the States, uh, depending on how conservative they are? I mean, I would assume that North Carolina is really not going to be the same as say Mississippi, or is that wrong? No, that's absolutely right. So, um, Mississippi is a, a lot more restrictive. Um, so this restrictive state index that we created is an interesting, um, tool because it looks at um, the balance between restrictive and beneficial policies to come up with this restrictive tone. Uh, so it's a little bit better at um, it's a little bit less of a blunt instrument, right, than just looking at restrictive or beneficial. And you find there is variation over the southeast. It's not something that we that we talk about in the paper, 
but um, there are a couple outliers. One is Florida, right? So Florida is a southeastern state, according to the Bureau of Economic Analysis, which is the designation that we use. Uh, but they're different. They're, it's the only state in the southeast that has a negative restrictive state index. Now, that's counterintuitive, but the negative means that they yeah. have more beneficial policies. Everyone else is positive, and some quite a bit, you know, very positive. So that's one kind of outlier. And again, that, you know, Florida has a large foreign-born population. Right? But I wonder in Florida too, the north part of Florida and the south part of Florida. Right, right. Yeah, so you're going to see a lot of differences within that. And another interesting outlier is Arkansas. And I was just huh. sort of looking at your questions and going back to that. So Arkansas allows undocumented immigrants to go um, to get in-state tuition, which is unusual. I did not know that. Yeah. Um, and... Um, it, it is the um, least restrictive or close to the least restrictive of the southern states. So I don't know why that is. Um, and I, it, it begs looking into. Because um, the other actually interesting thing I found in this research um, or that surprised me. So I came into this from a political economy framework. So when I first started thinking about this, the first thing we looked at in the first paper was industry influences. I'm thinking industries have to mitigate against these restrictive policies, right? They have to want access to a cheap labor force. They have to be pushing state legislators. Um, and we found really that industry, industry influences were not very predictive. Huh, yeah. Which really, really surprised me. And I, but I'm wondering in the case of Arkansas, and this is something that begs some, some study, whether it is industry influences, because you think about Walmart, right, which is headquartered in, in Arkansas, all the meatpacking plants. Plus, I mean, Arkansas is diverse. You have the mountainous parts of it. I, I don't know anyway. I don't know why Arkansas is different, but um, it'd be an interesting case study. Yeah, and I've, the first thing that popped into my head was just political, and that's, you know, Bill Clinton came from there, is that I feel like, but then so did Mike Huckabee, right? So there's, um, it it seems split in a way, but there's a very strong Democratic Party, it seems to me, in Arkansas that maybe is, you don't quite necessarily see in all the other southeastern states, I don't know. Yeah, no, that's actually a great point. Probably, I have to look into it, but probably, yeah, yeah. Um, and the, yeah, no, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different threads that you could grab onto to try to, you know, look at like, why are these things happening? I mean, the, the question of industry, I think would be a really interesting one. Uh, yeah, you know, you have to, it's like, you have to figure that the, um, the industry owners are deeply tied to state government are more likely Republican. Um, and so you know, why don't they uh, advocate more and why aren't they listen more about being able to open up to immigrants unless they don't care? And they're like, well, we'll just, we'll just hire undocumented immigrants, punish them as you want. We don't care. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I yeah. And um, it's actually what brought us into looking in part in North Carolina is, you know, that North Carolina legislature passed, they passed a series of bills on E-Verify, right? Whether businesses are required to use E-Verify. They were one of the yeah. first to require uh, public um, employers to use it, and now of course everybody. Um, but there was a there was a point at which they passed an E-Verify bill, but they um, intentionally exempted agricultural workers, right? And Pat McCrory actually vetoed it, and the legislature overrode him. So okay. <laughs> now, unfortunately, this is something we don't capture well in our model because that will be coded as a restrictive policy, right? It's still E-Verify, yeah. right? Even though agriculture, so that's something that takes a little bit more digging underneath in the recent, but even in the most recent iteration of the E-Verify bill, they um, exempted people who were uh, worked for 90 days or less, which is, you know, typically what it takes to 
to pick crops or whatever. They were they were yeah. helping. So the, the you know the growers in North Carolina had that influence, but you don't see it in the in that sort of macro level data. Yeah. So did you guys uh, develop your own coding system, or was that something that already existed for uh, for the um, restrictive? No, we did it ourselves. We did it ourselves. We we you know started out all, all of us coding about what and you know developed over time. You get pretty good at recognizing what is restrictive and what's beneficial and intent. Yeah. Do, so is it? Do you have it binary? Yeah, uh, there's a neutral category. Okay. Neutral. Okay. What would be neutral? So usually it's um, you know we're going to declare this national uh, you know Afghani day or something like that. Okay. So I guess you could potentially of, kind of positive, right? It doesn't impact people's lives, but symbolically positive. Yes. And a lot with human trafficking, but those. Okay. Are, yeah. Okay. Right. It's not exactly, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. How it, how it affects your immigrant population. Um, now, one thing is the if future research, which you mentioned in the, in the article, uh, you, you talk about including more analysis of religion, which I thought was interesting. So how do you think that might be a factor? Yeah, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dodge that a little bit. That was actually Jay's inclusion. Jay's a sociologist, and he's interested in religion and the effects of religion. Uh, okay, this is the thing with co-authorship. Yeah. So I'm not to say that I'm not interested. No, but I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I think so too, because there's this question of churches and conservative churches and you know conservative Protestant churches and how they respond to immigrant communities. Um, and you have like the Catholic church, which is very conservative, but it's very open to immigrant communities. So I, I do think it'd be an interesting research question, but it's more kind of his thing than mine. Yeah, because I, I mean, I, I would have to think, I, I don't know very much about it, but that evangelical churches um, are, are trying to get more people in the door um, include Spanish language stuff. Uh, and so you could at least hypothesize, I don't know, that they would be maybe advocating a little bit more. Um, but that might, I don't know. Um, but especially for the South, where religion is so prevalent, I think it'd be, it's fascinating because you always think about race in the South for very obvious reasons. Right. Um, but I don't, you don't connect religion and immigration quite as much. Yeah. Well, and in the case of the Catholic Church, right, they have this very progressive immigration policy statements, but it's not something that they pursue at the state level, right? They're not there, you know, at least in North Carolina, they're not advocating for more openness to immigration. They're interested in other things, other conservative issues. So that might be part of what's going on there. Yeah, it might just be they're, they're interested in human rights in general, but they may or may not be advocating for very specific state level policies. Or, or for undocumented immigrants, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, or even recognize how influential the state is on those questions, right? You think about the yeah. inequalities nationwide if you're undocumented, you know, whether you can go to school, college, right? I mean, there are two states in the Southeast where undocumented immigrants can't even attend public universities, right? Alabama and South Carolina, then you have states where they, they can attend, but they have to pay out of state, North Carolina, right? Right. Um, all the inequalities in the way people are treated depending on what state they are in. Or in right. California, you can sit for the bar if you're undocumented. Right. right? So there, it you know, raises all these issues of inequality. No, absolutely. Um, well, with that, we are uh, out of time. Uh, I've been talking to uh, Maggie Commons, who is Shelton Professor of Political Science at Queen's University of Charlotte. Uh, as always, Maggie, thank you and look forward to seeing uh, more of this kind of research. Thanks, Greg. Appreciate it.